Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of the Hopeful Environmentalist. It's your host Taylor and today we are here talking to two people that I have looked up to in the woke world for some time now and it truly was a pleasure to be able to interview them, to meet them, and to have this incredible discussion that you're about to hear. Our guest speakers, Jim and Jamie Dutcher, have completed many award-winning films on beavers, cougars, and marine ecosystems before they shifted their focus to wolves. From 1990 to 1996, they quite literally lived with wolves, as documented in their books and documentaries, and as they described in this podcast episode. Their experience living with wolves and documenting their everyday lives resulted in three primetime documentaries for ABC and Discovery Channel. Their films also won Emmy Awards for Outstanding Cinematography, Outstanding Sound Recording, and Outstanding Information Program for Science and News. They then founded a nonprofit, Living with Wolves, which raises awareness of the truth about wolves. Jim was also a consultant to the Grey Wolf Reintroduction Program, which brought back wolves to Yellowstone National Park. Jim and Jamie together have led three National Geographic expeditions to Alaska, where they observed different aspects of wolves' lives. They now travel across the United States to share their experience and a light of passion in people to become advocates for wolves as well. This is just scratching the surface of all that they've accomplished. And again, they are two people I sincerely look up to. So I'm very excited to introduce our incredible guest speakers, Jim and Jamie Dutcher. Taylor, it's really, really great to be here with you today. Thanks. Thank you so much. And so First, to start out, what what do you hope people get out of your book, Wisdom of Wolves, and your wolf documentaries? A lot, <laughs> I think. Um, you know, our, our book, The Wisdom of Wolves, was a very a very personal book for us. It it really delved into what we feel wolves can teach us about being human beings, uh, about being the best of human beings. Um, Wolves have so many of the characteristics that human beings do. And we live our lives very similarly in in families. We're cooperative. We care about each other. uh, We protect each other. uh, We work as a team. And um, so I I hope that people get from, from wisdom sort of a rekindling of what it's like to be human. You know, since, you know, especially with COVID and us being separated from each other, you know, maybe bringing people back together. And, you know, from our from our documentaries, really not not so much what wolves can teach us about being human, but what wolves are really all about, how they are compassionate, caring family animals. And, you know, they're not the myth of this, you know, vicious killer in the woods that that we really need wolves in our lives. They're important to healthy ecosystems. They are ecosystem managers and how they they really make everything better. And and again, what we can learn from them, that they are social caring family animals. They take care of their sick. They won't leave them behind. They take care of their young and um, just seeing the other side of the wolf that's very difficult to see through lady, radio telemetry and spotting scopes. And you totally get that across in your book. I had so many emotions when I was reading it. There was like I read it in two days because I couldn't put it down. <laughs> and I'm not a fast reader. So that was that was a lot for me. And I had so many emotions reading it. And I got all of that. Everything you said that totally went across. So 
again, I loved your book. I loved everything about it. And it really, it brought a whole new side of wolves for me, even though I've interned with wolves at a wolf center, it brought a whole different aspect and a whole different light because you saw them in a whole different, in a whole different aspect. So it was really amazing to be able to bring that to us. And we, speaking for myself, I know I felt it fully and wholly. So can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to live with the wolves and to start this amazing project? Yes. Um, I, uh, wolves are very secretive animals and difficult to f- observe in the wild up close. And we wanted to get within a wolf pack so we could study their social behavior. Um, I began my career as a wildlife uh, filmmaker filming underwater. Um, and all the creatures there were pretty secretive. I did a film on beavers, a, a nocturnal animal that you don't see very often, and then mountain lions, which we hardly see at all. Um, and with a mountain lion, um, we lived with a, a, a mother lion and her four cubs, three cubs, and um, got into her life and thought, well, maybe I can do the same thing with wolves. I didn't know very much about them at the time, except there was a lot of misinformation. I could sort of see a lot of myths and 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 hatred. And um, so um, we, we actually lived with a pack of wolves by raising them from pups and bottle feeding them from the moment they opened their eyes so they would trust us. And then we camped with them for six years in the mountains of Idaho um, in a tent. Um, we had wood stoves and lots of snow and very, very cold temperatures. But we, we were able to get into the, the pack and see each wolf was so different from the other wolf. And it was uh, that that it just amazed us how, how they got along as a family and how different they were. So that's that's what inspired me is the secrecy of the animal. Yeah. And, and I think also, um, you know, People sometimes ask, well, you know, why did you do this in captivity? Didn't that change their behavior? And what people have to realize is, you know, wolves are so scarce. And if if you're lucky enough to find a pack of wolves Mm -hmm. and habituate them to you to be able to film them, the next time somebody points something at them, it probably won't be a camera. So it was for the safety of wolves. And really, most behavioral studies or social studies done on wolves, or actually all of them, are done in captivity because you can't you can't see that in um, you know the broad scope of radio telemetry and and you know spotting scopes and binoculars. And you know we had the largest enclosure in the world. You know most most studies were done in in one to three acres, so we had twenty five acres. And you know we never tried to dominate the wolves or you know submit to them. Everything was on their terms and very. Yeah, we gave them names, but they didn't know their names. Yeah. No. So um, yeah, it just allowed us to to be in their lives. Yeah. I loved their names as well. I, I can't. I I kind of had my own pronunciations for them. So if you could like. Make sure I'm saying them right. Is it Kamats and Shamuk? Were those the two? Shamuk and Kamats. Kamats. Okay. Yeah. I was like, I was like, I'm definitely not pronouncing these right. And I want to. So that was one thing I wanted to ask you as well <laughs> for the pronunciations. So I was like, I'm definitely butchering these names. Um, yeah. And in, in some of our books, we do try to give a, a phonetic spelling so people can, can figure it out, but it, it still can be difficult. Yeah. Yeah. The, the names were beautiful, though. I loved that. Native American names, uh, Blackfoot, 
and um Nez Perce. Nez Perce. Lakota and, Sioux. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah, I, th- I believe that's mentioned in the book as well. So that's so amazing. Um, and your experiences are extraordinary, especially, um, Jim, when you were talking about moving from marine to wolves. And that's such a huge transition, but it's so amazing that you were able to capture in both secrecy of marine life and the secrecy of wolves. It's amazing that you were able to do that, both of you. And your book and your documentary about helping to end the stigma of wolves being these vicious killers and the myths that people have around them. It's amazing that you are able and you are able to do that. And that's the importance of of everything we do, right, is to make sure people understand the importance of them. So what when you were going into the project, what were your own preconceived notions about wolves and how did these views change during and after living with them? Well, I, I think for me, you know, I, I used to work before this at the National Zoo in Washington, D.C., and we did have wolves, but they weren't, you know, it wasn't like a pack of wolves. So you couldn't really observe, you know, this really great social system that they have. So I think, you know, mostly by actually, you know, living with our pack, just how social they are, how bonded they are to each other. Um, how much they care for one another and how much they care, how much they, they, they forgive. They'll have an argument, but then, you know, 20 minutes later, they're friends again, you know, kind of thing. And just also how emotional they can get when the death of a pack member occurs. One of our pack members, Mataki, was killed by a mountain lion that had scaled the fence and she was the Omega. So she would often be off by herself for periods of time. And, um, you know, we think that the cougar was crossing through the territory and jumped in and, and killed her. And, you know, by the time the rest of the pack got there, you know, the cougar was gone. But the visible distress in their body posture, you know, they hung their heads low, their tails were low. Um, they just kind of moved about in a, in a slow, listless manner. Their howling changed for quite a bit, uh, you know, for about six weeks, they didn't play and play is really important to wolves. And their howling took on this really sad, mournful quality. And, you know, we not only experience that as human beings, but we also see it in our domestic dogs. You know, when when a, um, you know, family member dies and, and you know, they become quite depressed and, you know, it's, it's just uh, extraordinary. So I think you know, just how how emotional their lives are is, you know, I think the, the one of the greatest things yeah. that we were able to see. Yeah, and it's, I had kind of the simil- a similar uh, experience learning about how their emotions are so complex. And I think sometimes people can't, or we don't think about how other creatures also experience emotions. And in the book, when you do- talked about that, that was one of the parts I cried. <laughs> and I felt that emotion. I was like, oh my gosh, no. And it's like, those wolves were grieving with you and with all of the readers who who read your book as well. We all were grieving that death of the wolf. And it's so amazing. It's not amazing that the wolf passed away, but it's so amazing to see that we have ex- similar emotions and similar experiences with that. Um, And then also when you're talking about the social structures of wolves and how I think a lot of people think, you know, we hear the story of the lone wolf. So Mm -hmm. learning about their complex social structures is so is so amazing and so cool to see that 
they aren't just the lone wolf, right? They they are in these social structures. Yeah, exactly. A lone wolf yeah. is a wolf that's really looking for another wolf and um, and um, form a pack. They they don't want to be by themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the family is everything to the yeah. wolf. And that's yeah. so amazing. So kind of talking about, you know, why wolves are so important and why we should be protecting them. What is the role of the wolf in in ecosystems? Well, it, it's, it, it was discovered or observed up close um, in Yellowstone, where it's easy to, to watch wolves since they've been re- reintroduced. But there were 70 years prior to the 1990s that wolves were absent from the park and things became out of balance. Um, there were lots and lots of coyotes and lots and lots of um, elk. And the elk would eat all the vegetation along the riverbanks and um, and the water got warmer and there were fewer trout. And well, bringing back the wolves has chased the elk out of the riparian area and and the vegetation has bounced back now. And the willows, cotton tree, cottonwoods, and aspens have grown back and shaded the water, making it cooler and a better habitat for trout. Um, and also the songbirds are living now along the banks and the beavers are back. And it's just a, a, a much better ecosystem with the wolves staying away. And, and it's created kind of like a, a, a fear and and this fear is um, a lot of these ecosystems to recover another thing is the coyotes there, were, there are so many coyotes in the in the park and um, they were eating all the rodents and that was really hard on the birds of prey well the, the wolves coming back have chased the coyotes away or killed them and uh, there's just half as many coyotes as were, were before and the ecosystems have improved because of that. So it's it just goes on and on. There are so, so many benefits to having wolves back. And it's just incredible to see what just a few wolves being reintroduced can do and how it can fix ecosystems that we've kind of destroyed as humans. So it's, yeah. it's really incredible. Um, kind of going back a little bit, Jamie, you were talking about wolves and being that emotional connection that they feel and in the book the wisdom of wolves you describe what it felt like to crawl in the den of a wolf who just had pups and many of us will probably never be able to experience that many of us won't Uh, (laughs) can you describe what it felt like and how you were able to develop that level of trust yeah it uh it was an amazing experience and you know every time it comes up or i think about it it's 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 a very emotional experience. Um, you know, uh, the alpha female Shamuk uh, was pregnant. We, you know, she was, uh, uh, it was really kind of funny. We would watch her, you know, she would choose where the den site was going to be and she would start digging a hole and that one wouldn't be good enough. So then she'd go somewhere else and, you know, who knows what it was, but she was like, no, this isn't right. And she finally found the right spot under a fallen tree and just started working at that frantically. And then at the same time, all the other wolves would just start digging little holes, not to make dens because only the, the um, they're only used to give birth, but just, they were just excited. And, you know, when the time came and, and, Shamuk disappeared in the into the den to give birth. 
we we waited a day and we knew that um you know i was probably going to be the one to go into the den because i had the closest relationship with her and you know jim and i had raised these wolves from pups bottle feeding them from the moment they opened their eyes so they would trust us without fear and you know we never you know treated them as pets as we did this you know um but it it allowed her to be very comfortable around me so um i went up to the den site and shmook was in the den and uh, i just kind of sat on the outside and she came out and um i started talking to her you know really talking to myself like hey i'm going to go check your pups and you know everything will be all right and i had a little tiny flashlight and showed it to her and and uh, I just, you know, took the chance and, and crawled into the den, which was um, really interesting. It was uh, it was a small uh, tunnel, but I was able to get myself in and it was about five or six feet deep. And then at the end of the tunnel, it opened up into a bigger cavern. And the pups, interestingly, were not on the floor. They were up on a shelf, like she had dug out a ledge and the pups were on this ledge, which we can only assume was, you know, to keep them off the damp of the floor if, um, you know, if it had gotten damp. And, uh, you know, I just, I was just in there, you know, probably less than a minute. I just, you know, checked on them and, you know, tried to do a head count and, and then uh, work, work my way out, which is a lot harder <laughs> than, than going in. <laughs> so I, you know, I wiggled my way back out of the den and, um, and there Shamuk was just sitting there and she gave me, you know, a lick on the, on the cheek and just went back into the den. So it was a it was a huge honor and um, just a, a really amazing experience to be able to go check on that. It was pretty special. Yeah, that's a once in a lifetime. Everyone reading it is like, oh, I wish. <laughs> yeah, and and the wool. Interestingly, none of the other wolves were allowed in the den. She wouldn't let any of them in. So that was extra special. <laughs> they they may not have been happy with me and maybe a little jealous. <laughs> but to be able to develop that level of trust is absolutely incredible that you guys were able to do that. And I had goosebumps that whole chapter. I was like, oh my gosh, I was like, what's happening next? Like, I have to keep reading. <laughs> so it was definitely a beautiful chapter. And it was so awesome and amazing that you were able to do that and develop that trust. Yeah, yeah, it was it was amazing. And we didn't know how it was going to turn out. I mean, I was very prepared to get bitten on the rear end. <laughs> so <laughs> it all ended well. But it goes to show as well, like the nature of wolves and how trusting <laughs> and incredible of a species they truly are. Yeah, they really are. Yeah. So for Jim, I have a question about, you know, the, the emotion, a, a different type of emotion, right? We were talking a little bit about losing a wolf pack member. And you talk about the heartache of losing one of them. And currently, wolves out west in the Rocky Mountain region are facing losses due to human hunting, the number being around 191 wolves killed in just the past few months. And some of them are a part of the famed Yellowstone wolf packs. And in the book, you de you describe how the wolves grieved so eloquently. And Regarding the current news about wolves being hunted, can you share how this might be impacting the wild wolf pack dynamic? Well, yes. Uh, what you're referring to is that, that what the story Jamie told you about um, Mataki and the, the mountain lion. 
and how the pack changed their behavior and mourned. Um, and we were observing the, the wolves and realized, I mean, we were feeling the loss too. You know, she was a special wolf, but we didn't realize how it affected the pack that that they um, stopped playing and stopped howling the way they usually did. And you can only imagine that um, an alpha wolf, um, a leader of a pack, um, when he or she perceives danger and somebody's coming to their area with a gun, a rifle, and um, that leader will probably be the first one to stand up to that danger and probably be the first one to get killed. Uh, we sponsor with our nonprofit organization research in the in Yellowstone and four other national parks. And some of the findings are uh, what we expected that um, the leader of the pack, if you lose a leader, the pack falls apart. And if, if you had a 10 or 12 wolves and in a pack and you kill the leader, or disrupt that pack to a point that there's only two or three in the pack, you know, small small packs like that. Well, they uh, they can't go out and bring down the large elk that um, they they need to feed upon. Um, and so, what happens is they go after livestock because they're desperate. And um, and so it's really counterproductive to try to control and manage wolves by killing them. And uh, the state of Idaho wants to get rid of two thirds of their reintroduced wolves, all this effort for nothing. And wolves manage their own um, family size and their own population. Uh, if there isn't anything to eat, the alphas might not mate. And um, if there's um, too many elk, uh, they may allow the beta wolf to mate. But usually in a wolf pack, it's just the alpha female and the alpha male that have puppies. So, um, so you can see how disruptive it is to to be uh, managing wolves in this careless manner. And it, that's kind of a lesson to all the people who are scared or despise wolves and are hunting them. It's going back to how you were talking about how important they are in ecosystems. And when we destroy that dynamic, like you mentioned, that they start going after cattle and stuff like that. But their intent isn't to do that. So it's we, we've seen um, ranchers um, write us letters and um, and hunters and say, I did after seeing your films, I didn't realize that wolves we're family animals, and I don't want to go out and kill any anymore. And so we've seen that change. And uh, one hunter rancher said, wrote and said, "In fact, I'm going to name my new hunting dogs after your, your wolves." Yeah. yeah, it's it's interesting because most people that despise wolves really only know the myth of wolves, um, and you know myths are hard to die. And, you know, everybody likes a good horror story. You know, um, wolves don't uh, attack people. I mean, you know, it's very, very rare. You're more likely to be attacked by an elk than, than a wolf. Um, you know, the the idea that the wolves that were reintroduced were supersized wolves from Canada. Well, we don't have a wall between Canada and the United States. Wolves have been crossing back and forth for eons. Um, 
and it, it's it's just and and wolves really account for less predation on livestock than really almost anything else. I mean, even unfortunately, domestic dogs take more livestock than than wolves do. Um, you know, livestock die from lightning strikes, birthing complications. Wolves are responsible for less than one percent of uh, of these predation issues. So, you know, if you if you can open up the minds of a lot of people and and just you know ex- understand their their fears and their um, their worries, you know, and and just have a conversation and explain what's really going on, then I you know I think we can make headway. Yeah, and that's why the work you're doing, you're both doing is so, so crucial to be able to open up the minds of people who hear those myths and still believe those myths to understand that that's not the reality of what wolves are and who wolves are. Mm-hmm. So going into what what are some life lessons that these wolves have taught you that you wish everyone can hear? And in your book, you have so many lessons that I've taken away from it. And so what, what are some of your, your favorite lessons? I guess the biggest lesson is forgiveness. You know, human beings by nature are not very easy to forgive each other. We like to hold a grudge. Um, but you know, forgiveness is is the big thing. Wolves really just want to live out their lives, and if we just allow them to, we can. You know, they can. You know, if if you're out in the wild and you happen to be lucky enough to see a wolf, it's because that wolf wants you to see it. You know, um, not just because you happen to stumble upon them. I, you know, another important lesson that we learned from the wolves is about bullying, actually. We had two wolves in the pack, Motsi, who was the beta wolf, so sort of second in command under um, Kamats, the alpha. And then there was Lakota, who was the omega wolf. And omega wolves are, you know, usually the last to feed, generally picked on, the focus of pack aggression, but they do have a really important role to play within the pack. And it was really interesting to see the relationship of Motsi and and Lakota develop. And, you know, we sometimes there would be a pack rally where the wolves were all howling and they, you know, gather around each other. And then sometimes, you know, there'd be a bit of a frenzy and it could get aggressive for Lakota and Lakota would try to get out of it. And Jim was filming this and, you know, I was recording sound and, you know, we're, we're, re-watching it after the film comes back and because this was film not, not video and we're watching it in slow motion over and over again and we're realizing that Motsi who generally didn't get into these disputes wasn't joining the uh the fray he was actually inserting himself between Lakota and the other wolves pushing Lakota, you know pushing the wolves out of the way so Lakota could get away protecting him and once we realized what we were seeing we really started seeing it more and more in in real time you know and um that that Motsi was really trying to protect Lakota sort of like you know somebody you know who's being bullied and then you have somebody comes comes in and protects them and we would also see Lakota and Motsi also go off by themselves and they would play together and they would sleep next to each other. Yeah. yeah, they had a really special friendship. Motsi, 
you know, part of Motsi's job was taking care of Lakota and making sure that he was okay. And that was an amazingly special bond to see between the two of them. Um, this this bond of, of of care and protection that again we don't see enough of in our human society, and just the the care of family and um, the camaraderie, the care for young and the care for the old. You know, a lot of the research that's been going on in the parks, and we have been able to see with our pack is that you know they really care for the elderly, and and they really all. You know, help with the pups, and in the Yellowstone uh, research and, and in other parks, um, the fact that you know older wolves really are the glue, you know that that can hold packs together. They are the knowledge, and that's also something that that we have in our society, but we forget about because we all move away and you know from from our families. And but it's really the elders that have all this this great information. And we need to tap into that and and I think remember that again, you know, get back to, as I said before, to, to being human. So, um, you know, that's that's really one of the most important things, I think, and that we were just so lucky enough to be able to see ourselves. And, and you know, we wish we could have everybody see it, and, but the closest we can is with our films and with our stories and our books. And we hope that gets across. Well, it definitely got across for me. I'm someone who doesn't forgive easily. So I was like, okay, I have to be more like wolves, taking that lesson and remembering that, remembering to do that. And when you were talking about bullying, that is such an amazing lesson for people to hear, especially with cyberbullying and all of the things that are going on now. It's such an important thing to learn and learn that if wolves are doing it, we can do it too. <laughs> you yeah, know, it's, it's not that hard. It's not hard to be a Motsi. You know, <laughs> I love that. That is totally, I'm quoting that. I love that. Um, and lastly, so what from the word, from your words and for people who are inspired by your words and your films and want to get involved in wolf conservation, wolf biology, wolf filmmaking, whatever it might be, do you have suggestions or tips for them? You know, that, that was something that many of my listeners asked about. And it's kind of also selfishly for me, I'm very interested in that field. So do you have any tips or suggestions? Well, not just studying biology and wolf biology, but um, I came at this in a very different way as a storyteller, as a filmmaker and uh, you know, author of these books. This experience and passing it on and making films is a huge industry that one can be a writer, um, an editor, a filmmaker, um, editor. Um, there's so many different careers that someone could follow. Um, but, you know, look at trying to influence other people about what this animal is all about. And um, I think there, there are many, many, many ways of going about teaching others you know, creative writing, for instance, yeah. is something that people might not think of because, you know, if if you if you're doing a research paper and you know that research paper is generally written very scientifically and, and very dry, you know, but then and so you have to wonder, okay, who's gonna read this paper? Your peers will read the paper, but if it's important information for the public, they're not gonna get it. But to be able to disseminate that information 
and you know repackage it for the general public, I, I think that's huge to, to make science and research accessible to the everyday person. And, you know, and that's through writing. And, and again, as Jim mentioned, you know, not only, you know, conservation and, you know, research and, and biology, but, you know, also storytelling through filmmaking and, um, you know, uh, journalism. You know, they're all really important ways to get to get your point across and, and to make people understand, to have that audience and to have that platform. That's so interesting. I never would have really thought about that and thinking about all the different ways people can get involved and not having, you know, when you consider the quote, 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 unquote, traditional background or science background. So I really appreciate you bringing those those ideas to light. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Like I said before, you know, you both have opened up my eyes to different aspects of wolves, even after working with them. And you really are doing the work to make this this world better and safer for wolves. So thank you so much. And that wraps up this episode of The Hopeful Environmentalist. It truly was such an amazing and incredible experience to be able to speak to both Jim and Jamie Dutcher. They have been two people that I look up to in the wolf conservation space. And to be able to speak to them, like I said, was a dream and absolutely incredible to hear their words directly, you know? And I I love their documentaries, I love their books, but to be able to sit down and have a conversation with them was an amazing experience that I will never forget. So truly thank you to Jim and Jamie and to everyone who helped make this podcast possible. I also wanted to say that if you want to support Jim and Jamie's work, you can support their nonprofit, Living with Wolves. You can buy a book, you can watch their documentary, and you can uplift their work because they're doing such important work when it comes to advocating for wolves. I've linked below their website that you can go and visit. And that wraps up this episode of The Hopeful Environmentalist. Always remember to stay hopeful and create positive change.